I'm Laura Odato, the Cato Institute's Director for Government Affairs, and today we're going to be talking about calculating risk and how to effectively develop policies based on risk. Recent events have made this topic even more relevant, and one important way that I like to sort of couch this topic is to think that, well, individuals have emotional responses to tragic and big events regardless of their frequency or the statistics that are happening to them. What we're talking about today is the responsibility government has to look at these numbers objectively and think about since it's their responsibility to make policies that keep us safe, to look at the numbers and make policy based on that alone. Our two panelists today have done extensive work on this topic and they have some great information to share. Who's speaking first? I'm Are you speaking first? Yes. Perfect. Our first speaker today is John Mueller. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a member of the political science department at The Ohio State University. He's a leading expert on terrorism and particularly on the reactions it inspires. His most recent book, Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security, which he co-authored with our other panelists today, Mark Stewart. We have a few copies of those for anyone that wants to come up afterwards. That book was published in September of 2011. John has been a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, the Hoover Institution, the Norwegian Nobel Institute in Oslo as well. He previously was in the faculty at the University of Rochester, and he is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has been a John Simon Guggenheim Fellow, and he has received grants from the National Science Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Following John will be Mark Stewart, who is on loan to us from Australia. Mark is a visiting fellow to the Cato Institute and a professor of civil engineering at the University of Newcastle in Australia. He is also an Australian Research Counselor, ARC, professor, professorial fellow, and he has more than 25 years of experience in probabilistic risk and vulnerability assessment. Since 2004, Mark has received extensive ARC support to develop probabilistic risk modeling techniques for infrastructure subject to military and terrorist explosive blasts and cost-benefit assessments of counterterrorism protective measures for critical infrastructure. In 2011, he received a five-year Australian Professorial Fellowship from the ARC to continue and extend that work, which includes this briefing here for you all today. So with that, I will welcome John to the podium. Thanks very much. Um, I'll be the one without the Australian accent. <coughs> um, the time is fairly short, and we want to give you sort of a briefing on, on what we think of as the way to do cost-benefit analysis, uh, which is very frequently not being done by the people who are spending the money. So it would be a, an effort to try to uh, put, this, put this together in a, in a reasonable form. Uh, these are some statements that were made uh, by a uh, National Academy of Sciences study of the, um, of the, of the risk uh, capacities that were being developed within the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they came out with a very, fairly negative report, to say the least. Says, for example, uh, with the exception of uh, risk analysis for natural disasters, the committee could not find any DHS risk analyses capabilities and methods that are yet adequate for supporting decision making. I think this is a little bit harsh in some respects. Uh, but it basically says they uh, substantially are spending money without really doing kind of analysis uh, that's basically expected uh, and is required by many government agencies. Um, okay, what I'd like to do is talk about three things. The first thing, very briefly, uh, the, the, the question about the capacity of terrorists, uh, and then talk about acceptable risk, and then um, uh, give you a sort of an, a quick view of uh, the way I think and Mark thinks uh, cost-benefit analysis should be done in the area of terrorism. Uh, and then Mark will get, go into more detail and sort of flesh out some of these studies we've, ac we've actually done, some of which are either in or presaged in the uh, Terror, Security, and Money book. Uh, just briefly on terrorist capacities, 
Uh, what you tend to have in the Department of Homeland Security is these kind of statements about the terrorists. Uh, they're energetic, uh, relentless, patient, opportunistic, flexible, have a, a great uh, knowledge of the economy and could uh, do really bad things and so forth. Uh, they may uh, fit a few terrorists here and there, including those who um, uh, did 9-11. Uh, but I've done a study separately from this, which is looking at all the terrorist cases since 9-11. Um, and uh, in the process, I asked the authors of the terror, of the, uh, which is an honors class at Ohio State, the, the authors of these studies to tell me about who the terrorists were, what their capacities were. And the kinds of words they used were much more like this. Um, and they, they tend to fit uh, just about all the 50 cases. Uh, even in the case of the, the Boston case, obviously, the, the guys uh, did where the first people were actually, first terrorists were actually able to make a bomb. No terrorist since 9-11 in the United States has been able to even detonate a simple bomb, which this was, but at least they got that far. But then they had no idea what to do afterwards. They didn't even have money, much less a car, to get out of town and so forth, and just assumed uh, that they would not be caught. Um, any rate, um, that's the, much more of the capacity of, uh, of, what's, of what's there. Uh, in terms of Al-Qaeda overseas, um, I can go into this more detail later if you want. Uh, it just seems to be it's, it's basically been, it was to begin with, a fringe group of a fringe group and has been steadily degraded ever. You may remember uh, since that time, you remember when Osama bin Laden's uh, hideaway was found, uh, was, there's supposed to be a treasure trove of information about future plots and so forth. And as far as I can see, the information coming out of all the computers and the hard drives that they took <clears throat> is that Al-Qaeda was primarily uh, designed to uh, de dealing with three issues. One is complaining about not having enough money. Um, an another was dodging drone strikes. And the third was watching pornography. Um, okay. Uh, and so in many respects, this is a statement by an anthropologist from just a couple of years ago, Scott Atran, should be kept in mind. Uh, never in the history of human conflict have so few, few people with so many, so few little actual means to do damage been able, be able actually to do so. Um, okay, let me, I'll skip, I'll go on to the, the second issue, which is the acceptable risk uh, um, issue. And it's just simply not really discussed. These two words, the, the idea that any risk is acceptable, just seems, doesn't seem to resonate within, within Washington or any place else, but it's crucial to the kind of this kind of analysis. Um, th this is a statement from 2003. Uh, um, uh, Michael Moore was being interviewed on CBS's 60 Minutes, and more or less in passing, he happened to say, the chances of any of us dying in a terrorist attack is very, very, very small. Um, and his interlocutor, Bob Simon, says, no one sees the world like that. Um, and to my, the thing I like about these statements is both of them are true. Um, and there may be some change lately, particularly after the Boston bombings, uh, more people saying, you know, how big is the threat, actually? And that's the main thing I would like to discuss uh, right now. Um, this is where I'd like to basically start and uh, uh, deal with it. Uh, what you have to do with the, the issue of res risk is find out, you know, what the risk is. And there's an easy way to measure that, which is basically how many people die of this hazard per year in the United States. Um, as you can see, about one in every 540 people die within the United States from, um, from um, uh, cancer. Uh, therefore, uh, generally speaking, if your chances of being killed are, are, are higher than one in 100,000, that's generally seen to be an unacceptable risk. And you should be spending a lot of money on that. And of course, we do spend a huge amount of money on cancer. Um, 
The, uh, but I'd like to, and then you can see the other things going down, and I'll talk about a few other things as, I, as we go through. But let me, let me deal, first of all, with traffic accidents. Uh, your chance of being killed in a traffic accident is about 1 in 8,200. Um, that's extremely high. Uh, the, um, uh, and, um, and we worry about a lot, uh, and should. Uh, this is the, um, the uh, annual, uh, this is the number of people killed in the United States over the life of the automobile since 1900. As you can see, it started out very low, but that had to do with the fact that there weren't any automobiles, um, then, gradu then gradually increased. Um, if you get to the 1930s, you get certain effects. Uh, the, the depression caused the accident rates actually go, the accident total to actually go down, the number of people killed, because people didn't have enough money to drive. Uh, it, it then rose again, uh, and then, fe uh, and then uh, 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 after that, then fell again at the last part of the end of the recession, uh, about 1937, kicked in again and dropped, uh, dropped again. Uh, this is World War II, a rather substantial drop. Basically, World War II saved about 40 or 50,000 lives. Um, this was because, um, first of all, they drafted all the bad drivers, which are 19-year-old males. Uh, many of them may have died in jeep accidents overseas, but those, those don't add, add, add in. And the other is that they basically um, uh, 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 they forced driving rates down by uh, rationing gasoline in order to save on rubber, basically on tires. Uh, the result of that is people actually had, there's probably a positive benefit because people now had to walk to church and walk to the movies and walk to restaurants as opposed to taking their cars there. So there might have been a positive health benefit as well as the fact of not using the car. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was one of the big drops of uh, traffic accidents. Uh, it resounded, it came back obviously after, after the war and really hit its peak in terms of total deaths, about 50,000 or 55,000 in the 60s. Since that time, there's been a decline. Uh, most of these declines are having to do with economic downturns, including probably the one that's most recent. In fact, maybe we're coming out of the recession because the 2012 figures <clears throat> seem to indicate that there's been an uptick in automobile deaths. Okay, well, the, the issue I'd like to deal with here is uh, this. Uh, uh, the, uh, what we're doing, basically, with automobiles is accepting this incredible risk. The, if, if we keep it more or less the same level we're in here, it means that by the end of the century, uh, between three and four million people will die from automobile accidents. Uh, it's quite possible that one or two of them is now in this room. It's, you know, it's very common. Everybody knows people have been killed or badly injured in automobile accidents. Um, and I'd like to propose a law which will not go very far in Congress. But this law, if passed, would save um, some uh, maybe three million people, over the, Americans, over the course of the century. Very simple law, about 13 words. Um, the speed limit for private passenger automobiles in this country shall be 13 miles an hour. Now, in D.C., that would actually be speeding it up, of course, but uh, in most places, that's not the case. Now, if you're opposed to that law, uh, that means that you're willing to pay two to three to four million lives over the course of this century uh, to keep the private passenger automobile. Um, uh, and so what we've got is an acceptable risk at a very high level. We really love automobiles. Um, we want to keep them. Now, that one, one possibility of this, um, it, it should be pointed out, that you don't need automobiles to move people around. The New York, taxi, the, the New York um, uh, subway system moves millions of people every year, and except for those who try to jump between the, between the cars, um, uh, it kills none of them. 
Uh, so if you only have taxi cabs, buses, and very slow-moving passenger automobiles, you could, you could save uh, literally millions of lives over the course of the century. And we don't do that. In other words, the gain from having automobiles seems to be worth it. Now, what we have done is throw a lot of money at the problem, and that's been incredibly successful. Uh, this is the, the, the rate of death per, um, per uh, passenger mile. What's happened is there's far, far more cars than there used to be, far, far, far more driving, but your chance of being killed in a given automobile ride uh, has gone down from about 25 for 100,000 miles down to just three or four. And this has, and this, as you can see, there's no World War II effect because this is just how many people die per passenger mile. Um, and it's been a, a major improvement. But the problem is that uh, when you do that, people still drive even more. So it's very hard to see how you can get this death rate a whole lot lower. Uh, and so essentially, again, if, you're, if you disagree with my pr modest proposal, uh, you are willing to accept uh, um, with near certainty, as far as anything can be predicted in social science, uh, two to three to four million Americans to die over the course of this century. Um, let me turn to some of the other issues, two or, uh, two or three other ones. Uh, the third one on there is homicide. And let me sort of explain what, the way I think that sort of works. Your chance of being killed per year is one in 22,000. One out of every 22,000 Americans is killed in a homicide each year. Now, that's not as bad as automobiles, but on the other hand, automobiles have a positive gain, whereas homicide doesn't seem to have much of any. And everybody would agree, I think, that that's unfortunately high, um, though it's not as bad as it has been in the past and uh, might be in uh, many other countries. Um, okay, but you may be uncomfortable with one in 22,000. Okay, well, there's a few things you can do which are really make reduce your danger quite a bit. And these are, many of these are really cheap. Uh, one of these is to not deal in drugs. Um, now, I know some of you may have always, your fondest uh, uh, plan was always to be a dope peddler, and you'd have to give up on that great plan. But if you, for those uh, other people, uh, basically, that's not much of an inconvenience. You didn't plan to be a, dub, a drug addict or drug peddler anyway, um, and so he's saying out of the drug trade is pretty easy. Another thing is just sort of street smarts. You know, don't walk down dark alleys at 3 o'clock in the morning and so forth. So that, those, those, are, those are minor inconveniences and well worth the price. So if you do both of those things and similar sorts of things, you can probably uh, change your homicide chances to maybe one in 80,000 or one in 100,000, one in 60,000, something like that. Okay, there's also something you do which does cost a lot of money, and people do generally, which is try to move to safe neighborhoods. And so when people buy houses, one of the things that is not trivial in their consideration is how safe is the neighborhood, not only for me, but also for my children. Um, and uh, that, obviously, is the biggest expenditure most people ever make. Um, and there are other reasons to buy a house. The schools may be better and so forth, but it's certainly there. Houses that are in safe neighborhoods command a higher price than the equal house in a not safe neighborhood. So you pay more. Okay. Maybe with the, if you live in a safe neighborhood and do the other things, you can get it up to one in 100,000, 120,000, rather than one in 22,000. A lot better. That's not perfect. The next question is, why, if you really think safety is so important, why don't you hire a bodyguard? Uh, it, uh, you can probably buy, a, buy uh, um, uh, if you've got enough money, uh, maybe you can, it may even be tax deductible, um, you can hire a bodyguard for, I don't know, forty or $50,000 a year. And virtually nobody does that. Why not? It will, if safety is so important, your children's safety is so important, why don't you spend more money to make them even safer? Well, what you say, basically, is it isn't worth the money. It isn't worth spending additional money on, the, on this hazard. 
uh, because it, I'm comfortable with it if it's only one in 100,000. I'd rather spend the money on something else. I might spend something on something cheap, like putting better door locks in my house. Uh, that, that's okay. That'll increase my safety a little bit and doesn't cost much money. But I'm not willing to hire a bodyguard. Why not? Well, safety is not the most important thing. Paying for your college education, paying for your children's education, et cetera, other things, going on uh, vacation to the Bahamas, whatever you want to spend that money on. So the point is that the risk has become acceptable. Uh, let me give you two other examples. One is drowning in a bathtub. Uh, the number of people who drown in a bathtub every year is about one in a million. One, about three, three to th three to four hundred people die every year drowning in a bathtub. Um, now, people talk about terrorism being this big dramatic risk. Well, drowning in a bathtub is really horrible uh, for about half the people who drown in the bathtub because they're babies and children who are being bathed. Uh, their mother is called away or something, their parent is called away, and suddenly they slip under and die. Now, they, uh, it's hard to think of anything more heart-wrenching and horrible than that. Um, but we don't, we accept this, even though it's, it's heart-wrenching, even though a non-trivial, well, a small number, but nonetheless uh, a non-trivial number of people die each year. Um, and, 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 and half the deaths or so are very, that, that are very emotional. We don't, we don't have a bill saying let's fill up all bathtubs in the country with concrete uh, or even put a label, warning label on a bathtub saying, you know, be careful here. Or even, as far as I know, sending out uh, messages to pediatricians saying warn your new, your new parents about this danger. Maybe it's in there, I don't know, but I don't think so. So again, that's an acceptable risk. It's heart-wrenching in, in a lot of ways. It seems sort of stupid. Um, you know, how can you drown in a bathtub? But when it actually happens, you can see the horror of it. Okay, the third thing um, would be uh, terrorism. Your chance of being killed is one in 3.5 million per year. Um, generally speaking, uh, for an American over a long period of time, including, as you can see by the numbers there, 9-11. Uh, um, and so the, uh, and also the Timothy McVeigh bombing. It's, this is not only by Muslim terrorists, by any kind of terrorists. Uh, and that's basically where the terrorism, um, uh, but where the discussion should basically begin. Uh, essentially, let me get to this, uh, the, the wrong question is constantly being asked. The wrong question is this question, are we safer? The right question is, how safe are we? Uh, or as a risk analyst put it in 2002, how much should he be willing to pay for a small reduction in probabilities that are already extremely low? So the discussion of terrorism, and every newspaper article uh, should say this on page, in the first paragraph essentially, your chance of being killed is one in 3.5 million. That's where you should start. Maybe that's not safe enough, just like one in 22,000 isn't safe enough in terms of homicides. But you should basically say that. That's where it should begin. Uh, it should begin. As far as I can see, no public official has said this publicly. Uh, since uh, in, la in the last decade, uh, with one exception, and that was Mayor Bloomberg, uh, who said, get a life in 2007, said, get a life, your chance of being killed by a terrorist is, ab is about the same as being killed by lightning. Um, and uh, he got a lot of flack for that, but he was re-elected mayor a couple of years later. He had some problems being re-elected, but it had nothing to do with his statement about lightning. Um, actually, if I go back to this, uh, lightning only kills one in seven million people, but uh, Bloomberg used to be right. This will give you another example of this. Uh, it used to be that lightning killed about one in 3.5 million people, and it's gone down a lot in the last 10 years, 20 years. The reason for that is we got, it has nothing to do with measures to try to reduce the death from lightning, but as ancillary measures that have come in otherwise. For example, gotten a lot better at predicting bad storms, which you'd want to do anyway, uh, it, it not only lightning storms, but hurricanes and tornadoes and so forth, so that's given more warning. And also the rise of cell phones, 
is good because it used to be that about quite a few people were on the telephone and their house was struck by lightning and they were killed by that. And now with, with cell phones and with uh, detached phones, mobile phones, uh, that doesn't happen. I've never seen a cell phone guy, though, try to sell a cell phone saying it'll save your life, but uh, uh, it sort of has. Okay, anyway, that's the way things should be looked at. Um, and uh, Kuhnreiter's argument is really very good. Um, and that's, again, my plea is to start with that. It doesn't mean it ends the problem or the issue, but you should start there. Um, now, this is a statement by the Department of Homeland Security, Transportation Security Administration, about body scanners, uh, which they were forced to actually make a statement about uh, by a, a suit. And the only thing they talk about their risk analysis for body scanners is this. The first statement is basically nonsense. Risk reduction analysis shows that the chance of a successful terrorist attack on aviation target generally decreases as TSIA employs the body scanners, the uh, AITs. Well, um, anything you do uh, will re that, that can, can reduce, uh, it's basically a, a relative, a comparative uh, thing, anything you do would actually reduce the danger of being killed. Um, so, for example, coming into this building, I noticed there are a bunch of security guards down there, sort of, you know, it wasn't thousands standing around like TSA, but there were several of them standing around. And I got through it uh, very easily. And uh, you could make this whole building safer by hiring more security guards. Would that make it safer? Yes. Is it worth the cost? Not necessarily. I mean, you have a security guard. Why don't we have 20 security guards? Why isn't there one in this room? Why isn't there one at the door? Why don't we have a magnet thing, uh, uh, um, uh, um, x-ray thing at the, at the door and so forth? Um, so anything you do will reduce the risk a little bit. The question is, is it worth the cost? And they don't seem to even understand that in this. If they had said it reduces the risk to the point of being uh, uh, helpful, it would be worth it. Uh, the other half is also important. However, the, the results of TSA's risk-reducing analysis are classified. One of the things that you need more than anything else in risk analysis is openness. Because you, as you'll see when, when I finish today and also uh, Mark uh, talks, um, you have to make a... You have to make assumptions. You have to have used data. The data are not always exact, and you have to explain exactly where you got them so other people can critique the, the, the argument. Um, <coughs> okay, finally, um, this is basically the basis of cost-benefit analysis, and Mark will be adding a lot of flesh to this in a few minutes. Um, there's only four things you have to do, consider. Um, one is the probability of a successful attack. Uh, the second is the losses sustained in a successful attack. And the third is the risk reduction. Uh, what you have is, uh, let me take a different, well, let's take a, um, the, um, uh, somebody wanting to hijack an airliner. Um, you may put in place things which reduce the probability that the t attack will be successful, the top thing, uh, for a security measure. Uh, for example, having uh, no-fly lists reduces the possibility that a terrorist could get into the, uh, into the, uh, into the plane. Uh, you may have uh, um, uh, um, uh, hardened cockpit doors. That makes it more difficult for them to get to, to be able to hijack the plane. So that security measure reduces the probability of a successful attack by making it more difficult for the terrorist. Uh, other security measures could reduce the losses of a successful attack. The only one I can think of that really does that is being able to shoot down the airplane after it's been hijacked. Um, and which, which is now a possibility, not a very pleasant one, but nonetheless. It means that even if you were able to hijack, successfully take over the airliner, uh, all you could do is crash the airliner because, if you, because we'll, have, we'll, we'll uh, 
be able to shoot it down. That, redu that doesn't reduce the probability of a successful attack, a, su a successful hijacking, but it reduces the uh, costs uh, should it be hijacked because it won't be able to ram itself into a building. <coughs> and the third item is how much does the risk uh, reduce uh, the, uh, uh, how much is the re uh, risk reduced by the security measure? Uh, so you have to come up with some sort of percentage. It reduces by 5%, 10%, 20%, whatever. Uh, those things multiplied together <coughs> are the benefit. Then against that would be the cost of the security measure. Okay, uh, let me, I'll, I think I can illustrate this fairly easily and then finish uh, with a couple of examples. Uh, what we've frequently done is a version of this called break-even analysis. What happens is at what point does the, does the benefit equal the cost? In other words, the three things multiplied together, which is the benefit and the cost, which is obviously the cost, at what point do they become equal? Uh, uh, and at, at, if, if the benefit and the cost are exactly equal, it's obviously a question mark whether you want to put the benefit in, when you put the security measure in. Um, if, on the other hand, it, it's quite a bit higher than the cost, then you say it's worth it. If the cost is higher than the security measure, than the, than the benefit, then it makes, it's, it's foolish to, to spend the money on that. You should spend it on security measures that actually are cost effective. Now, uh, if I can take you back to your first day of algebra in high school, uh, this can be manipulated this way. Uh, instead of sol you, can, you can see what the question that uh, can well be asked is, uh, what is the probability, what would the probability have to be of, of for a security measure uh, at a given cost reducing uh, risk uh, for it to be cost effective? Uh, and all you have to do to cal calculate a probability is calculate the three things on the right. So let me give you two examples and I'm, then I'm through. Uh, one of the things we've done in the book is look at the uh, total increase of, of uh, security measures in the United States since 9-11. That'd be DHS, that'd be the Department of Justice, that'd be private businesses, that'd be the military protecting bases within the United States. Um, and that comes to something like $100 billion a year. Uh, we use a slightly uh, lower figure in the book. Um, okay, so the first thing you have to calculate is the cost. Okay, the cost I've given you, it's obviously an estimate, but it's not terribly hard to nail down. Uh, the second thing you have to deal with is the losses of a terrorist attack. Well, terrorists can do various things, some of them pretty, pretty small, well, some of them pretty big. Well, let's take, let's worry about a really big attack, a, a, a car bomb or a truck bomb at Times Square. So the car bomb, uh, the, 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 the attack we're worried about is, um, is a very large attack, a, 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 the kind of attack that the guy tried to do at Times Square, uh, either the car bomb or with a uh, truck bomb. If, if there's a car bomb, there's various ways of calculating this, <coughs> and these also have to be transparent so other people can uh, uh, indicate, uh, deal with them. Uh, the, uh, uh, the cost of the security, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the losses would be maybe $100 million to $500 million for those kinds, including the cost of human life. And then finally, uh, the issue basically has to, you have to do is what would be the risk reduction. <coughs> but what we assume is that the security measures in place before the security measure, before the enhanced security measures, um, reduce the risk by 50%, and that the new security measures reduce it, reduce, it, reduce it almost completely to 45%. If you do that, what you come up with, the question is how many attacks, what would be the probability of these kind of attacks have to happen 
uh, to justify their cost benefit that they be cost uh, cost uh, that they be um, uh, uh, their cost would be equal to their benefit, and it comes out to be that you'd have to have um, uh, deterred, prevented, or protected against about one large truck bomb attack against Times Square every single day since 9/11. Um, the other example, which I'll now conclude with, is that we deal with what? Uh, how about protecting a building? an office building like this one. Well, um, we use a fairly low cost estimate. We say that you could, you could secure the building just about completely uh, with a cost of maybe $250,000 a year, which is only you know price of a few security guards. Um, yeah, we also figure out the, 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 how, how bad a, a, a bomb attack, a, a, a truck bomb attack might be on the building. And we assume that this, these measures basically reduce the risk almost completely. If you do that, what you can calculate is that um, uh, the even inexpensive measures to uh, protect an ordinary office building from a terrorist attack would only be cost effective if the uh, probability of an attack on that building were a thousand times higher than it is at present. So I'll give you some sort of idea of what you can do with very simple straight analysis. Okay, I've talked too much. Let me get, let Mark in here and he can add some flesh to some of this. Thank you. Okay, thanks, John. Um, now, as, as, as an engineer, I like numbers, I like equations. And, you know, and what we do in a lot of our work is, is basically cost-benefit analysis. We look at the, at the cost of doing something and what's the benefits of doing that. And, for example, is it, is it cost-effective to make a building stronger against earthquake? But that, but that will cost some extra funds. Do, do, do we do it or don't we do it? And so, in a sense, applying this to homeland security and also, also climate change is a, fairly, is a relatively simple thing to do. You don't need particularly sophisticated models to get a good handle on what the costs and benefits are going to be. So, if we start looking at aviation security, the um, TSA has a very large budget of you know, more, more than $8 billion a year. Nearly all of that budget is actually spent on aviation security. And Plus, you add the U.S. Customs and, and border, um, um, border Protection, private expenditures, the air marshals. You know, airlines have to provide free seats to air marshals, and that's worth about $250 million a year. Plus, there's opportunity costs. So we're talking about some fairly serious money. So let's start look, looking at aviation security. We're obviously concerned about to prevent an 9-11 type attack or to prevent a suicide bombing. They're the two major threats that the TSA are most concerned about. And so there's many layers of security and the TSA has 21 layers. Right? There's nothing magical about those 21 layers. Why can't there be 15 or why there why can't be 25? Um, and they include pre-boarding pre security. The passengers and crew are, are most likely going to fight back if there's hijacking any time in the future. Hardened cockpit doors, air marshals, full body scanners and so on. And one of the things that we're interested in is really, you know, where do you draw the line? Right? How much money do you want to invest in something that will give you the best, the best bang for your buck? So you're really trying to model what is the risk reduction going to be? And perhaps if, if the risk reduction is low for this hazard, maybe the funds could be better spent on some other hazards rather than terrorism. 
So let's look at an example, the full body scanners. That's received a fair bit of publicity in the last, last couple of years. The TSA plans to deploy about 1,800 of these in the next, next couple of years. And the main reason for those is really to deter or prevent a suicide bomber. Right? They really don't do much about hijacking, but they, you know, if what we read is, is correct, they should deter or, or help prevent someone carrying explosives, particularly when they try to conceal them upon their body. So we estimate the cost is going to be about $1.2 billion a year in terms, of, in terms of operating cost, and most of that is really in the staffing. Even with 1,800 scanners, that won't cover 100% of all airports. And the TSA actually have a website that actually lists which airports these scanners are currently in place, which seems a little bit strange because then you might think, well, maybe the, maybe the bad guys would, might go to an airport with, which is not on the TSA website. So, but, but, but given that, the only two IED attacks that have really occurred on US aircraft both occurred when the um, terrorists boarded their aircraft internationally. They didn't board them in the US. So at the moment, no one, there's been no threats against the United States for people boarding, the, boarding aircraft in the US. So the way we, we tend to look at this is you know, the TSA have the 21 layers of security. So we can start to look at this as a systems analysis. So the first layer the TSA has is, is Intel, right? And so let's assume that, that the Intel has a very low chance of actually detecting terrorists, maybe only 10%. Then there's you know, international partnerships where they might get tip-ups from, from the British or Australians or someone else. And, let, and let's assume that that might prevent or deter this sort of attack by maybe 10%. Then there's border, border, border protection, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the pre-screening, the pre such as the no-fly no, no list. Let's assume these have a very low rate of success, you know, 10%. Behavioural detection officers, the travel document checker, you know, the guy, person who checks your ID and your travel ticket before you get, get to screening. The, the, the TSOs who actually man the metal, metal detectors and, 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 and so on. The, you know, the TSIs, you know, all these layers, the bomb appraisal people, let's assume they all, all have a very low chance on their own of detecting a terrorist of, of 10%. Some numbers, you know, I'd imagine that the, 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 the screening will be higher than 10%, maybe some others could be low. But it's a good basis to start. Right? We're, we're being very conservative in our, in our estimates. Uh, experience to date have, have shown that, that the two IED attacks on US aircraft, they were foiled not by these previous layers, but by the passengers and crew. When they saw something that was suspicious or dodgy, they took immediate action because obviously their lives were, were a threat, so they, so, so they took the action. So we assume that no, there's a 50-50 chance that the passengers and terrorists are actually going, going to, to catch these guys. There's a good chance that if someone does get a smuggle an IED on, 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 onto an aircraft, there's no certainty it's actually going to detonate. Not, not, not every bomb that ID that they make is going to actually work. So we've assumed that there's a 25% chance that it won't work. Right? There's also the probability that even if a bomb goes off in aircraft, it doesn't mean it's necessarily, necessarily going to, to crash. There's been instances in the past where there's been oxygen tank explosions on aircraft, there's blown out cockpit door, uh, uh, blown out doors, all sorts of other accidents, and in most cases the aircraft can, can still land because most IEDs that you can smuggle onto an aircraft are going to be necessarily small because you want to 
you want to have them concealed. So they are going to be small. And if they're too small, they, they may not be that effective. So we've assumed again that um, you know, a very, very large number, that there's a 75% chance the aircraft will actually crash if an IED actually detonates. Again, we, we think that's being fa fairly conservative. You can put that into, into, into an equation, like a systems equation, I won't go through that. The end of the answer is it comes out about, about the risk reduction for all those layers is about 90%. Right. If you then add, add in other deterrents and, and other layers of security, such as the FBI, the police, tip-offs from the public, you know, um, and, and so on, the risk reduction is going to actually get much smaller. So the existing layers already are probably pr pretty effective. Right? You could probably, you might even argue that maybe we need a few less of these layers, right, rather than having, having, having 21. So, so that's the starting point of what's the existing risk reduction from, from the existing measures. So it's obviously, it look, it's actually looks, looks pretty good as it is. Okay, now we add in the full body scanners, right? And we're looking at a cost of about $1.2 billion a year. So, so that's a fair, fair amount of money. So if we look at pre-boarding security, the full body scanners, there's now going to be an extra layer of security in um, pre-boarding. And we've assumed that they're about 50% efficient. So that would detect about 50% of, of concealed IEDs. Ag what might actually help prevent a detonation is, is, is that the, if the terrorists know that there's a full body scanner, they might try to make the IED simpler, smaller, uh, use components they normally wouldn't use to try to, get, to try to get it through. So that could actually make the probability of the thing actually detonating much, much lower. It also means that you're probably going to have a much smaller device. So therefore, it's, it's less likely that, the, that an IED is actually going to bring, bring, down, bring down the aircraft. So we've really introduced three, three extra uh, layers of effectiveness, each one about 50%. In series, that that's, reduces the risk by about 90%. When you put that into, into the risk reduction equation, the risk reduction ends up being about 95 to 99%. So you're going for about 90% to maybe 95, maybe 99 the overall risk reduction of just putting the scanners is about 5 or 10 percent. Right? We think that's pretty generous. We suspect it's going to be a lot less, but we've tried to, to err on the, on the conservative side. Okay, so as, as John was saying, what we, information we need for cost-benefit analysis is what's the risk reduction. We've said that's between, it may be 7.5 percent. The cost is about $1.2 billion. The consequences of, of a successful attack is somewhere between two billion to maybe fifty, so pick somewhere in the middle, maybe twenty-five billion. Right? But no, that's a serious amount of, of loss. We do the break-even analysis using the equations that uh, John showed you previously, and you'd need to. There has to be really one threat or one one attack once every two years for these scanners to be cost-effective. If you if you want to be a bit more certain about it by considering some of the uncertainties in the in the analysis. You can do the calculations, and you need has to be more than one attack every year to be 90% certain that, that that they're going to be cost effective. With a break-even analysis, it's a 50-50 chance that it could be good or could be bad. If you want more certainty to be absolutely sure that it's going to be a net benefit, then the attack likelihood has to increase even higher. 
Now, um, our view is we don't think the threat is actually that high, because in the last 10 years, the threat likelihood has been zero. Right? The two threats that have happened have occurred overseas, so having scanners in, in the US wouldn't have helped anyway. But it's not up, up to John and I to say it clearly doesn't work. It's really saying this is, uh, this is a way to look at the problem. If you think we've, we have, we've used a number that's too high or too low, you can put your number in and see whether it obviously changed the, 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 the quantitative number, but it might not change the decision as to whether we, you believe they're going to be cost-effective cost or not. It's very transparent, so you can question our, our, our assumptions. You can say, well, you know, we don't like this model. What about this? What about that? And, and you can test how robust the results are going to be. We've done extensive sensitivity analysis, changing this number, changing that number, making this doubling that, halving another, and we basically always end up with, with the same conclusion with, with the full body scanners. Some other work we've done, we've looked at, the, at these second, um, secondary barriers to airline cockpits, the installed physical secondary barriers. I understand that there's a bill before Congress uh, sponsored by Congressman Fitzpatrick about this. And using very similar approaches, we found that those secondary barriers only cost about 12 to $15 million a year and they reduce the risk by about 5%. So we have full body scanners reduce the risk by maybe 5% at a cost of $1.2 billion, or secondary barriers on, on, on cockpit doors, the same risk reduction at a hundredth of the cost. Right. So if, you're gonna, if you have so much to spend, you probably want to pick the secondary barriers because that's much more cost, much more cost effective. Okay, the other issue uh, I'll just briefly touch upon is um, climate change, because we have the similar issues we see for Homeland Security. There's a lot of cost neglect about, about who pays to mitigate CO2 emissions. There's a, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of probability neglect about the probability of these impacts. There, there's risk aversion, should we act now or can we defer decisions or action to some later time? And again, the whole issue about acceptable risk, which, which is what John touched upon as well. So let's look at, at the costs and benefits of mitigating CO2 emissions. And I've used some data from the, the British Stern Report of 2006, which looks at, at, um, at global costs. And Stern came up with, a, with a, a loss by the end of 2100 to 2200 of 10% or nearly 11% GDP if we don't do anything to mitigate CO2 emissions. So we basically continue on business as usual. In the US context, that's about $1.6 trillion a year of losses each and every year. Right? That's the cost of rebuilding 10 million homes a year, uh, losing all of the industrial assets in the United States, or, or just losing Texas. And you can pick which one you think is the worst um, or the best. And obviously, if you believe those numbers, that's obviously, that obviously also has national, national security implications. Right? So in this case, the impact seems to be extremely bad. Now, I don't believe those numbers, but they're very high. The report also says, well, but there's uncertainty, and the fifth and 95th percentiles is between 2 and 27%. So there's enormous uncertainty in that. The cost to mitigate CO2 emissions is going to be about 1% of GDP, but again, it could be as, as high as 3.5%, or it could be as low as minus 1%, so it might, might actually be, be beneficial you know, at, at no cost. 
And if we actually mitigate CO2 emissions to about 550 ppm by 2050 and keep that constant um, forever, the impact of climate change is going to be reduced where the losses go down from nearly 11% down to maybe 1.11%. So if we start looking at this from our cost-benefit analysis, you know, what's the loss, how much is the cost, and what's the risk reduction, then the risk reduction in this case is going to be 90%. If we look just at mean values, we don't look at the uncertainty, just look at the mean values, then how high does the, do we have to be confident that we'll get that climate change to be 50-50 uh, sure that that's a good investment to mitigate CO2 emissions? So you do the calculations, it end up being 10.2%. So the, so the likelihood of climate change has to be at least 10% to be 50-50 sure of a net benefit. 10% you know, is a pretty low value, and I think most of us would think you know, that that's a reasonable likelihood. It's probably going to be much higher, but you know, about that. So it looks to be very, very, very cost-effective. Right? But we haven't really considered the uncertainties, and the uncertainties can give you a very different, very different, different picture. And if we go back to our inputs, what's the loss? How much does it cost? And what's the risk reduction? We just assume you know, bell-shaped distributions for these where we take into account the lower and upper bound values and run that through a very simple Monte Carlo simulation analysis, the risk reduction, instead of being 90%, it could be as high as 98% or it could be as low as 40%. So now the risk, risk reduction could actually be much, much lower than what we might get just by looking at, at, at the mean, mean values. When we run our numbers through to see what's a break-even probability, of climate change, it has to be now 70% certain of this climate change to be 95% certain that reducing CO2 emissions is actually, is actually a net benefit. Right. So the issue is then, well, the decision suddenly becomes clear cut. So how confident do you want, do you want to be before you start spending $700 billion a year on, on CO2 mitigation um, work globally? And you don't see too, too much of, too many of these sort, sort, sorts of analyses. Again, it's very transparent and it, and it should help you make, make a decision. And one aspect to do, do with this is really climate adaptation. It's probably going to be much more cost effective to actually say, well, maybe we should actually adapt our behaviour or start to design our infrastructure to be, to be more resilient and less vulnerable to changes in climate. Okay, so as, just, just to reiterate what, what John was saying, if, if you have a risk-based approach, which is what TSA and DHS say that they're doing, then they need to know something about the probability of the event. What, re, what risk reduction do you get? What's the level of acceptable risk? And how confident you want to be before you start making decisions where you could spend a large amount of money with a very, very little, little return. So thank you for your attention. Thank you.